Seasons, greetings, urban property investors. I hope you're having a fun-filled time, whatever you're up to. I'll tell you what, I am. I'm lazing about on the strange island of Norfolk. But I'll tell you what is not strange. My episode pertaining to the 12 golden steps to the perfect property as an investment. If you're thinking about tackling buying a property in the new year, Well, this episode is for you. 2023 is set to be a bumper year. And I tell you what, understanding the tips to the perfect property is a great cornerstone way to make sure you set up your foundation correctly if you're planning on investing. So check out this episode. It's part of my best of 2022 series. I'll catch you soon. Have a great day wherever you are in IGA. But, uh, in, <coughs> whoa, Rafi. Oh, man, Rafi just let let rip. Dude, I'm in a podcast. He's sitting under my legs. Whoa. Woo. Jeez, boy. Um, I apologize. That is, that is inappropriate for a podcast. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, Code Cracker, we're going to dig into the 12 golden rules you've got to consider when choosing a property to buy or invest in. We're going to go through them all. Yes, this is some deep stuff when it comes to property investment. In fact, I feel like I'm inviting you into the chocolate factory. Yes, if you've ever watched Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, you know you need the golden ticket to see inside how brokering real estate works. I'm going to give you my top 12 tips when it comes to choosing a property. The golden rules, if you like, the golden ticket. So this is the one episode. If you're going to listen to one property episode or one property podcast this year, this is the one. I'm... I. I can hands down say you can get rid of the rest of them. This is the one you want to listen to. So welcome aboard, folks. If it's your first time tuning in, hey, it's uh, it's a mad bunch, the Urban Property Investor Bunch. We have a good time. We talk real estate. We usually chew the fat for about an hour. So there's some rules. You guys know it. Make sure you play the show in double speed because chewing the fat for an hour, listening to me for an hour, Wow, you've probably got better things to do with your life. So speed me up, do me in half an hour. Also, if uh, you are interested, the other podcasts I've done are all lessons on real estate in one way, shape or form. Uh, So feel free to go back. But we're going forward. We're going into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. We're going to see what's behind the scenes. Uh, Do uh, Oompa Loompas and property investment have anything to do with each other? Obviously not, but there are some golden rules when it comes to property investment. So uh, we're going to go through my top 12 tips when it comes to thinking about property investment, when it comes to choosing a property um, and making sure you've got something for the long term when it comes to property investment. Now, a few uh, things I need to flag. I've still got the spicy cough, so I could be coughing uh, because of the COVID. 
and uh, Rafi the Gopnik dog is actually sitting on my toes right now, uh, licking my toes. He's got a, a fetish with toes and feet. And so um, if you see me sort of kick out or, I don't know, uh, sort of bounce about, um, it's because I'm being tickled with my toes. So he really, for some reason, likes licking me. I think I'm not clean enough for him. Um, I don't know. Uh, he likes to shower me with his tongue, which is quite weird because I, I obviously I, I feel like I'm a clean human being, but perhaps to a dog I'm dirty because uh, he tends to want to clean me a lot, which is quite weird. And it's a weird sensation having um, some weird furball gopnik dog bull terrier's tongue on your on your feet, um, particularly when you're doing a podcast. But hey, it's a it's a cold day, so I can see why he's here. He wants to snuggle up and get on with life. Right, now we've caught up. Uh, now you've listened to three minutes of useless information uh, about learning how to come into Willy Wonka's uh, Chocolate Factory. We're going, <laughs> there's the cough, uh, we're going to go through some of the rules I think are important. Uh, on a serious note, uh, what I think is important when it comes to property investing. So rule number one. We want a golden rule number one uh, for the golden ticket to the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. We want to make sure we're value investing. We want to make sure when we're buying real estate, we're thinking about the overall return, overall return logic or value investing. For a lot of property investors, you know, buying a property where the rents don't cover the debt, it's just too extreme. And of course, you've got to factor in, you know, interest rate movements, interest rates going up one day, um, all sorts of uh, conversations around the cost to own real estate. So I think probably the golden rule when it comes to real estate is to consider value, overall return logic. Um, like I would rather choose a property which is going to pay for, for itself from its rental proposition and uh, forego a little bit of capital growth just not to fund a property out of my own back pocket. And uh, there's certainly some counter arguments to that. And certainly if you're wealthier, um, you know, the fact that you could buy a high growth asset with a low rental return, um, you know, may get you more growth in the long run. But of course, it's going to mean you're digging into your back pocket to prop up the property and use uh, have the property perform over that period of time. In other words, you can make a million dollars worth of capital growth, but if you're paying half a million dollars worth of cash flow to get there uh, over, say, a 15-year period, um, you know, you've got to take into consideration that total return logic. And for me, the golden rule, if you like, is to get to the end game 15, 20, 25, 30 years um, down the track without putting too much of my own money into a deal. I want to use other people's money. So golden rule number one, buy property which is value-orientated, uh, which absolutely mathematically makes sense. We want the numbers to work for us. And uh, I've seen property break people when the cash flow loss is just too hard for them to sustain capital growth. And as interest rates no doubt will move one at one point, 
you know, if you're trying to get $100,000 worth of capital growth, but it's costing you $20,000 a year to do that, um, it can mean that you're trying for capital growth or trying to get real uh, growth from real estate, but you're paying too much for that privilege. And when the growth comes, you actually have made no money because of your cash flow loss. So <clears throat> I think golden rule number one to the Willy Wonka chocolate factory is making sure you're balanced, total return logic. All that means is we want to know the possible capital growth performance of an area. We can use past performance for that property type in that suburb. Then we want to know the rental return of the asset and potentially the tax reductions. And we create this sort of total return logic, if you like, for where we go with the real estate value investing. And some marketplaces today, the value has left the market. Like you can't possibly buy the right level of rent and the right level of capital growth. It just no longer in the marketplace. So I wouldn't be buying in those marketplaces, those suburbs, because uh, the cost to own them and the future cost to own them outweighs the ability to get capital growth. When capital growth comes, it's just going to mean that you're playing catch up. So every time you kind of go um, negative, you've got to play catch up harder in capital growth. So I like the idea of what we often refer to as being neutrally geared when it comes to real estate investment. There's positive geared, positive cash flow, negative geared. Um, the, the more neutral we are means we're probably getting ourselves a high growing growth property, but also having the rents to sustain the ability for that real estate to pay pretty much for itself, give or take a few bob. So we've done golden rule one, let's move to golden rule two. I think probably one of the big conversations around real estate investment is we want to buy real estate or we want to buy a property which has great future demand. We want continuous people to be interested in the area we're buying real estate and the property type of real estate we're buying. But more importantly, we need to buy a property where the future demand is actually going to pay more for the property than we did. Now, again, if um, the asset we're buying today um, is just, you know, only appealing to a certain type of, of, of person um, and there is no future appeal or future demand or a wealthier group of people that can see themselves living in that neighborhood, what happens when the market stagnates is we don't actually have a consumer who is willing to pay more for the property than we did. And to complicate matters even more, we need to find a consumer of tomorrow to pay more for property, more than what we did quite often in a money market, which is completely different to the money market we've bought it. So if you've bought real estate now or in the last couple of years, you've bought in a money market where the value of the cash rate is is ridiculously low. It's, it's basically free. Uh, into the future, uh, say 2025, 26, 27, you know, people borrowing money on, on 5%, 6%, whatever it may be. Um, the guesswork there is I've got to buy a property today 
which is in demand tomorrow, but also in demand to someone who can afford the home loan of tomorrow, in other words, a higher rate of interest to buy the asset, to service for the property, but I also need to buy a property where someone into the future, the socioeconomics of that person actually is willing to look at what I own and go, I'll pay more for it. Um, So it is a bit of a rule and, you know, one of the best ways to consider how that may unfold, if you like, is affluence, affluence score. You know, a simple simple methodology, if you like, is to use Microburbs, which is a free website. You can just check out the affluence score Um, and, you know, you obviously need to read between the lines, but if, you know, a score is 10 out of 10, it means that the major person of that suburb is earning the highest uh, proportion of income inside society. So obviously if you buy an asset in a suburb where there's a higher score, the likelihood of, um, you know, that, that suburb performing into the future and people earning more money to buy or pay more for a similar type of property to you or the same type of property as you is, is highly likely. Um, conversely, if you buy in a one, um, you know, do, do people really have more money? Do people want to move to a one uh, affluent area? Uh, it doesn't sound to me that appealing, right? So <clears throat> um, it may mean like the affluent score is a six, but the nearby suburbs are an eight. So you can kind of guide, well, okay, so there's going to be a ripple here. More wealthier people are going to come to the suburb. That can be a good thing, right? So quite often the wealth, uh, or someone paying more for a property doesn't actually come from inside the suburb itself. It comes from people being attracted to the suburb. So there's a bit going on there, but again, this is the golden ticket. You know, this is the Hershey's bar. You've opened the Hershey's bar. You've got the golden ticket now to go to Willy Wonka's factory. I'm telling you what's inside Willy Wonka's factory. That was the Oompa Loompa. Now we're moving to golden rule three, which uh, if you are buying on a budget, which most property investors are, and again, I think, you know, if you've got truckloads of money, you know, you go buy the $1.5 million stuff, you're not going to have a problem with real estate. Like you've got truckloads of money, you're making half a ton a year, you're making a million bucks a year. You know, golden rule one, which is value, you don't need to worry about, right? Because, you know, you're doing so well in your job that earning more income isn't necessarily your challenge. So you can throw golden rule one out, by the way, if you're earning half a ton a year. Um, you've you've got the world is set. Like for you guys, <clears throat> I'll give you your golden rule. You probably only need one. But actually, you know, you you just buy the best assets. Everyone else who's kind of like got a budget, you know, maybe earning a moderate amount of money, maybe just in a regular job, um, you've got to balance this stuff out that you don't want to be tipping into your back pocket constantly to prop up an asset which may not be in a phase of growth. That really does meddle with people's mojo. So, um which leads us to golden rule three, which I love. I think it's one of my skill sets. 
if you were to ask me what my skill set is, I'm very good at taking lint out of the tumble dryer. I'm very, very good at uh, mountain biking. I am, uh, despite breaking my arm last year, um, I'm, I'm good at a few things. The other thing I'm very good at is mapping real estate to find affordable real estate pockets, which are not going to end up becoming uh, lower socioeconomic uh, places or ghettos or, or the wrong side of the tracks. I like finding affordable properties where the suburb becomes highly prized and livable. And over a period of time, one of the biggest problems you buy with real estate is the problem of time. Over a period of time, that area is seen as highly livable. And, uh, you know, I mentioned this in, a, in uh, la- last week's podcast that, you know, uh, one of my most successful property deals is I bought a property which my generation thought the area was, was horrible. Uh, however, the generation coming through had a completely different view of that suburb. I gave it 10 years for that generation to mature. And that suburb now is, is everyone wants to live there. It went from being affordable to livable. And, you know, when we talk about supply and demand, it can be a bit of a strange conversation at times because the demand gap is what people can afford but highly livable suburbs. So for property investors, it's fairly simple. Um, if we are on a budget, uh, $600,000, $800,000, I know, you know, today that that's not a lot of budget, you know, let alone three, four, five, six hundred thousand $600,000. So if you've got a budget and you need to value invest, you, you, you're you not earning half a ton a year where you can buy um, extreme real estate in the best pockets of society, then your goal or the golden rule is to buy affordable properties which are very livable, highly livable, uh, highly livable suburbs. Now, again, you've got supply of real estate, but what does the demand actually want? The demand inside of real estate wants affordable properties which are in highly livable neighborhoods, right? So, Again, if we're out shopping, this rule is uh, an absolute um, awesome rule. It's it's one of the best rules in real estate. Which brings us to rule four. And again, these are the keys to the kingdom. I'm giving you guys the the uh, tick list. You know, you can go away and, and when you're analyzing real estate, you're going to go, does rule one work? Does rule two work? Does rule three work? Now we're up to rule four. The fourth rule of real estate is a simple rule. Lifestyle rich suburbs or neighborhoods equals profit. That's it. That's the rule. Lifestyle rich suburbs or neighborhoods equals profits. And, um, you know, you, like simple as that. Now, again, <coughs> there's the cough. There's the spicy cough. Um, I'm post-COVID, if you haven't heard. Uh, I thought I was COVID Jesus for a while there. I'm not COVID Jesus. I was hanging out with people that had COVID. I wasn't catching COVID. I didn't think I could get COVID. Uh, I got COVID. So rule four, we want lifestyle rich areas, which uh, equals profit. And again, quite often what we refer to is 
uh, amenity-rich neighbourhoods, uh, amenity-efficient amenity neighbourhoods. And again, a lot of these lifestyle areas um, can be, you know, quite often found in typical places, inner ring suburbs, middle ring suburbs, coastal suburbs, blue, uh, uh, you know, um, green belt suburbs, blue belt suburbs. All that means is like beach suburbs or tree suburbs. So again, like I know I harp on about this a lot that uh, lifestyle equals profit, but it, it absolutely does. And, you know, when you think about how Australia is going to grow, by mid-century, it wants uh, 40 million people. You've heard me talk about that before. Like, all those people are fighting over lifestyle-rich neighbourhoods. Um, and it's interesting. Like, I find it very fascinating because, you know, uh, studying the Sydney property market, if you like, um, where the extreme prices of a Sydney real estate, you know, you go to the eastern suburbs and, you know, Man, like a house is 10 million bucks, right? It's 10 million bucks to live in the best lifestyle area of Sydney. So then people went to the northern beaches. You know, now houses are four, five, six million bucks, right? For the lifestyle rich northern beaches of Sydney, the North Shore, five, six, seven million dollars. So then um, from an affordability point of view, like, uh, people are, are going south now. And again, like soon as that area in the southern pockets of Sydney was um, seen as affordable but highly livable, it's now two, two, three million dollars. So then you're constantly looking for these lifestyle rich places and they can be, um, you know, they can be gathered around culture, arts, uh, you know, green green areas, blue areas, um, they are just where the profit is to be made inside of real estate, which is, uh, which is exciting. And, you know, I think when it comes to real estate, um, real estate itself has some, some great, uh, you know, stock in the market, but supply is generally – put in places where people actually don't want to live. Think about that, right? Supply is put in places where people actually don't want to live. People don't want to live 60Ks from the city. They have to because of a budget, but they don't want to. Um, and supply is kind of not put in neighbourhoods where people want to live. And, of course, what this does is means that lifestyle-rich suburbs, as a golden rule, will always carry less uh, stock, if you like, to to than the the sort of broader market. That's just the way it way it works. So the next rule, if you like, is a little bit like what I was just alluding to. Like we have suburbs where supply is going to go and we have suburbs where supply is not going to go. So the fifth rule of this game, if you like, is we can choose to buy real estate where the landscape of the market can change like constantly around us. And 
like for a lot of property investors, they just don't have the buying power to buy in marketplaces where stock is hard to come by. And so they are asked to go further and further and further afield. Now, eventually, uh, based on your budget, if you don't have a strong budget, you're just going to have to let go of rule five. Like you're going to have to go, well, you know, I've just got to bite the bullet and either save more money, come up with better buying power, uh, find a better wife with more money, uh, whatever the things are, uh, you either have to do that to borrow more to buy in a better space or you've got to bite the bullet and go, is property even something I should do? Uh, what are the alternatives? Should I do crypto? Should I do shares? Should I uh, invest in my super? And if you come to the conclusion that property is still your thing, then uh, you've just got to be cool with the fact that if you are going to places where the availability of uh, land is open-ended and the availability of supply is open-ended, you're just going to get a lower level of growth. But that can be okay. That can be okay if you're prepared and you understand what you're doing and you understand the trade-offs and also what else you can potentially invest in. But as uh, one of the best rules, if you like, is the idea that if you invest in areas where there's limited availability, um, tightly held areas, old suburbs, suburbs which are traditionally much older, uh, you get this effect where you uh, generally have more demand than there uh, basically is supply of real estate. So that uh, is an amazing rule, if you ask me. And I think it's one of the best rules of real estate, one of the best golden rules, if you like. Now, the next rule pertains, I love that word. I could say that word all day, pertain. Uh, I'm going to use that at a sentence when I go to the IGA after this podcast. I'm going to use pertain in IGA. But, uh, in, <coughs> whoa, Rafi. Oh man, Rafi just let let rip. Dude, I'm in a podcast. He's sitting under my legs. Whoa. Woo! Jeez, boy. Um, I apologize. That is that is inappropriate for a podcast. Um but the next rule is the ghetto rule, right? And when it comes to real estate, the golden rule is to avoid the ghetto. Uh property is about people first. So we want to select a property whereby rents can go up due to social status always improving in the neighborhood. <coughs> well, it's pretty bad. Um, so again, like one of the conversations in real estate is always about, well, will my property uh, double in value? Um and one of the conversations that is seldom talked about in real estate, well, will your rents double in value, right? Like over time, you want your rents to improve to the point where they also double in value. And the sheer fact is for a lot of real estate out in the marketplace, it just simply attracts unequal or inequality to it. And the idea of rents going up 10, 15, 20 bucks 
is an extreme amount of money for the occupant of that asset. So the conversation is, well, let's find a property suburb to buy in where, of course, the social status of that suburb is always improving and people are always prepared to pay more rent because there's less real estate uh, it's a lifestyle area, but also the social status of the neighborhood is very, very, very strong. So <clears throat> there's the spicy cough. Sorry about that. So that is a really solid golden rule. And uh, now we're moving to the next golden rule, which is to choose a property with great owner-occupier appeal. Uh, owner-occupier appeal means so much to real estate. It really does. Like if people feel safe in a space, they pay more for it. If people feel like that area is going to improve their social status, they pay more for it. So in real estate, as a golden rule, we want to make sure we're buying in really good neighborhoods uh, that the suburb, the street, has really, really good appeal. We want to make sure the property is very appealing to the greatest level of demand in the marketplace. And as such, we call this owner-occupier appeal. Now, there's a lot of real estate out there that when you sell it, no owner-occupier is ever going to buy it. The only reason it can get sold is if an investor is interested in the real estate. Now, I'm taking my lemon to market this year. I've appointed an agent. I'm ready to go. Um, and um, that property, if you like, basically has to sell to another investor. So the rents have to be good because otherwise the investor wouldn't buy it. Um, and ultimately, the person who ends up buying that property probably is, um, you know, hasn't been through what I've been through, where if there's no owner-occupied demand, if owners, whether they're singles, couples, couples with kids, uh, more mature people, like if they're not interested in the asset as a home, then you've got a real problem when it comes to the value proposition of your asset. If your property is what I refer to as a rent for life property. In other words, it's only ever going to be used by a renter. Uh, if it's sold, only another investor is going to buy it who then in turn um, pushes it onto another renter. Um, then you've got a real problem. And what I see a lot within the buyer's agency space is, is this kind of um, self-liquidating find an investor, sell an investor's property to another investor and so forth. And, you know, in real estate, I think it's something to be very, very wary of. I see a lot, uh, I see a lot of real estate agents team up and feed property to buyer's agents. And then the buyer's agent is like, oh, I've got this sneaky off-market deal. But really all that's happening is the real estate agent is choosing a landlord who hates their property from their rental book, um, telling them they can get a better price, uh, getting a new investor to buy that property and putting that investor back into that rental pool 
Uh, and in real estate, that's known as self-liquidating a sale. And so um, like if an owner-occupier was going to buy that real estate, the real estate agent would never get back the property to, to remanage. So again, like there are some uh, properties out there which just never make great uh, owner-occupier assets, whether someone's um, a young executive or a family, like they have a certain type of product they want to go and buy in the marketplace. And it uh, has to be some of the better product in the marketplace or they won't buy it. And so again, you know, there's some good returns out there that you can get as an investor, but sometimes the return falsifies the the asset's true worth because uh, it's only appealing to a uh, tenant. It's not appealing to, um, yeah, to the rest of the market. <coughs> there's the cough, spicy cough. I apologize. So um, we want to choose... Uh, property in a neighborhood, which is what I often refer to as amenity rich, which is the next rule of real estate. Like what is amenity rich? Like, what is it? It's an interesting phrase. Like, what do I mean by that? Schools, job centers, transport, shops, parks, beaches. Like we want real estate, which is connected to stuff. Um, and the more stuff a suburb has in a good way, um, the better off that real estate is going to perform over time. The more tenants are going to want to be part of that neighborhood. Um, schools, for example, are a great you know, driver of, of why people live in, a, in suburbs. Um, jobs are so critical to this whole puzzle. And again, like if job centers are close by to where your property is, it means people can get to work in 15 minutes. It means that there's uh, opportunity, there's um, there's growth for that human being. And, you know, I know there's a temptation to go, well, everyone's going to be a nomad into the future. But, hey, look, you know, also people are going to work and getting uh, trained and skilled up within their office workspace they're getting uh, and soon you know people start you know you potentially will start to see a divide into the future where someone's more enthusiastic about their job than other people and of course if there's downturn economics you know i guarantee you the person who's more participated will end up being the more uh, desired in economics so participation is productivity and again i think if we can choose these kind of amenity-rich places, we're going to do very, very well from a property investment. It is a golden rule, and it is part of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory that we want amenity-rich neighbourhoods. And again, like there's so many suburbs which are not amenity-rich. Like you go to the suburb, you're like, where's the school? And they're like, well, there is no school. Um, what do you mean there's no school? You've got a suburb now and there's no school. How do, how do these homes be built without schools? Like... Like, that's not amenity rich. That is a productivity issue. And again, like some suburbs just have productivity issues and ultimately that leads to challenges when it comes to real estate. The next uh, rule 
that I love is good design absolutely matters. Good design absolutely matters. And uh, again, like, you know, I think you either got two choices in real estate. You buy something and add design elements, like renovate it, or you design something from the get-go and make sure it's highly priced. Um, you know, obviously in real estate, there is a temptation to talk about the worst house in the best street. And, you know, for a lot of property investors, that's the program. Like you buy the worst house in the best street. Now, the worst house in the very best streets do very well. But the problem is most people buy the worst house in the worst street or the worst house in the the medium street. Um, they don't actually buy the worst house in the best street, the best dress circle of the neighborhood, the best uh, street in a suburb. They buy the worst house in the worst street. And that is not a principle of property investment. That's a principle of degradation. That's a principle of uh, your asset really struggling in um, economics. So we want good economics, right? We want good economics. We want good inclusions, good design. And again, good design is very, very important and is a golden rule. And, you know, you guys have heard me talk about this before that, you know, there really is three functions of design. You know, you got functional design, like can people function in the property? There is a lot of dysfunctional assets, like you walk into the home, it's a rabbit warren, it's tight, like, man, you can't swing a cat in the place, you can touch the ceiling. Uh, some apartments are too small. Some, um, you know, properties are just so, you know, flawed when they're, when you walk into them, they're, they're from a bygone era or even new properties which are just shite that you've got to understand how good design flows and a lot of it is functionally based like uh is it is it um it can be smaller it can be sleeker but it's got a function you can't waste space like space is so valuable that you want uh it used well and circulation space inside properties is you know a key fundamental of it all um We've obviously got other design principles, which I like teaching. Reflective design is just the idea that the energy of the property reflects social status improvement. And behavioral design logic is just the idea that the property uh, creates a lifestyle for the buyer or the owner or the tenant. Uh, behavioral design could have a great size backyard. Behaviorally, you know, the kids can come around uh, what is the behavior the property brings? Kids running around, right? So again, like um, whether it's a, a smaller property or a larger property or an apartment or a townhouse or a house, like behaviors matter. And, um, you know, the more sort of uh, behaviors a property can create for people, then the more people kind of consider that they are happy to live in the asset. Um, the next rule and... We're almost at the finish of the rules, but we're going to go through a couple more. So stick with the program, stick with the show. Uh, speed me up if you're finding this too long. But rule 11 to me, uh, sorry, rule uh, 10, I think we're up to, is one of the best. One of the best, um, which is when it comes to real estate, 
real estate is uh, basically split into A, B, C, and D stock. Yes, A, B, C, and D stock. Now, the A star, A stock can then be ranked AAA, AA, or A. And to rank a piece of real estate AAA, it's going to have the best land characteristics, the best building characteristics, and it will have the best neighborhood or location characteristics. And as a property investor, you know, the higher the aggregate of the asset, the correlation you will receive in capital growth. The AAA properties like make so much money for people. The trouble, of course, is the consensus of AAA properties is built into the price. So people know it's good and will... Uh, it's probably already been recognized that it is incredible real estate. So as a property investor, you know, we may get um, a good property, but it may not be AAA because we're spending $600,000. But we can still make some good decisions that, you know, maybe the land characteristics is great, but the building characteristics are a bit flawed, but the location is great. Like we're getting, you know, a double A or a double B or a B or a B plus or however you want to run the, uh, exp- like the, the dialogue of how to rank it. But the three things you need to consider are land characteristics, building characteristics and location characteristics. And uh, when I rank my properties and the property I am selling this year, the lemon, if I look at the land characteristics, like it is flawed. It is not a good street. It's a busy road. So I bought real estate on a busy road. Um, Bad move, right? Just terrible characteristics. When I look at the build characteristics, so I would would score that – uh, property on its on its ranking, I would say it's C grade, C grade like land. It's just C grade. It's not B. It's not A. If it was A or B, I wouldn't be selling it. My portfolio that I've kept over the years, and I've sold down sold down some real estate over the years to pay off debt, uh, to become more debt free, which is what you do as you get older. Like you, you eventually work out that you don't want more debt. You're just cruising like you're happy. Um, you know, I'm I'm happy. I'm cruising. Um, the the asset that I'm offloading, the land is shit. It's, it's crap. Um, it's, in, it's in a bad, bad, bad spot. There is better land in the neighborhood. Uh, the build characteristics, the property is dysfunctional. Functionally, it is a bad uh, design. For the property. Like I bought that property so many years ago. I had it actually taught me about design. Like you all pay for lessons in one way, shape, or form. And that building and how dysfunctional it is, um, and that that property dwelling and how dysfunctional it is, um, has taught me that that is a C grade uh, dysfunctional property. Um, even when I talk to the real estate, like we laugh about it. We're like, far out. This thing is just, how did it even, like, how did someone ever approve that? Like, it's just so bad. 
Um, and then the location characteristics are also C grade. Like it is miles from anywhere. Um, it's not close to the shops. It's not the hippest um, pocket of that suburb. It's not the part of the suburb people want to want to go to. From a location point of view, it's a bit off the track when it comes to where the, how that suburb functions. Now, suburbs themselves or locations themselves have their own functionality. Like they they operate in a way people want to be on that side of the track, not the other side of the track. The shops are over there and your property's over over here. So like even inside a suburb, there are obviously better streets and worse streets. And, you know, there are A-grade streets and then there are D-grade streets and um, or D-grade locations within that suburb. So I'm going to score that suburb at like a triple C, uh, sorry, that property a triple C. And because it's a triple C, it's got to go. Got to. It's got to get out of my portfolio. Um, it won't perform. It's not going to perform. I'm kidding myself that it is. Um, I'm lying to myself that it's going to perform. And this golden rule, which is one of Willy Wonka's best golden rules, is a cracker. So the next golden rule, if you like, uh, golden rule 11, is that... You, the tenant, and the tax man make up how cash flow works on real estate. You, the tenant, and the tax man. So you always want to have properties where the tenant and the tax man does something. Now, I often find this with property investors that they don't uh, take advantage of of the tax system as best as they can. Now, someone's just rung the doorbell. Hang on one sec. Thanks, man. Awesome. Oh, I tell you what, it's hard to do a podcast these days. You got the farting dog, you got the, the delivery man. Uh, hey, those delivery guys do a great job, don't they? They're always bringing things around. Um, so you got you, the tenant, the tax man. Um, and you know, as I alluded to in golden rule rule one, you know, you, you ultimately want the cash flow coming from the tenant and, and, and the tax man. But why I've put this as its own rule is so many people don't know the tax system. So, um, you know, you get tax deductions for more modern real estate. You get full tax deductions for new real estate. You can claim that tax deductions weekly. It's called a PAYG variation. And so what happens is um, a lot of people go into stress owning assets unnecessarily because they don't know how to play the tax system. And I might come back and do a complete overhaul or a podcast on the tax system so that you guys are across it. But again, you know, the fact that you can uh, control your cash flow, cash flow is king. This is the rule. Rule 11, cash flow is king. So uh, you want to make sure that if you're owning real estate, you um, are tapping into your cash flow potential. And if you buy real estate that's older than you, 50 years old, um, you're not going to get any tax advantages using the system set up for property investors. So 
Um, now, that's not to say like every old property is bad. You've got to study it on its merits. But what I'm saying to you is it's easier to go longer owning real estate the more cash flow you've got coming through the door. So it is a golden rule. Um, you've come inside Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. These are the rules that I love teaching. And the final rule, if you, uh, if you are prepared to listen to it, is that real estate, and I've said this before, and I've said it a lot this year, so I won't harp on about it so much. But the final rule is real estate is about shelter for people. It's about culture. And it's about the storage of wealth. And if you can offer those three dynamics to the marketplace, you become quite wealthy out of of real estate. Great shelter for somewhere to live, someone to pay you huge amount of rent. Uh, If you're part of a culture improving, you're going to do very, very well out of real estate. And if you're in a tightly held neighborhood, you're going to store more wealth because there's less properties that uh, ever get sold. I was just speaking to a colleague of mine and we were analyzing um, a certain architect and uh, uh, design team's work. We were trying to find resales of, of their work and we couldn't find many at all because the storage of wealth was just so great that people don't want to sell the real estate. And, you know, in some respects, Real estate that never sells is the best real estate. You actually don't see the best real estate on the market because it never sells, which is kind of, you know, counterintuitive to what we buy. So if we can find something that never sells or has the great caliber of of a design team that, you know, designs this stuff that once it's 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 real and live it's probably never going to sell. And and what that does to the value of real estate is just, you know, makes it exponentially worth so much, so much more. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. And I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.